Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Hi everyone, my name is Chiara Morelli and welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. Today I'm thrilled to have Simon Daniel with us. Simon started his career with an undergraduate degree and following that he became an equine nutritionist. After that, he worked for the University of Liverpool to implement the parasitology diagnostic laboratory service. In the meantime, he completed a PhD regarding the efficacy of equinental miltics and their effects on the intestinal health at the University of Surrey. In 2014, he joined the Royal Agricultural University School as senior lecturer in equine management and science. He's also part of the Counter Working Group and Antelmintin Resistant is in my interest. Hi, Simon, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Right, today we're going to talk about gastrophilus management within an era of Antelmintin Resistance. I'd like to start, Simon, asking you uh, what is gastrophilus and how do horses get infected by them? Sure, I think when um, we think about this particular parasite, if we think about it in sort of horse owner friendly terms, they're the, the botfly larvae and, and the botflies that we see around typically in the summer months. So, really, they are that the fly is an ectoparasite but it lays its eggs on the host, typically the horse, um, and uh, the eggs work their way into the horse, various routes, be that ingestion or or burrowing in through the the skin, and then they uh, gestate inside the horse, um, and then finally, usually excreted in the feces and then pupate out in the soil. So that's the sort of the, the, the fly's life cycle. So it's an interesting one because normally when we're thinking about horses and parasites, we're thinking about worms. And this isn't a worm, this is a, a fly, but it's a fly where the, the larvae are actually gestating inside the horse. Right. And what do you think is the clinical impact on horses? Well, this is an interesting one because there are cases where we do see clinical disease associated with various gastrophilus species, but generally they don't cause uh, much harm to to the horses that they infect. Um, so uh, you quite often horses will have a, a burden. They will have some larvae gestating within various parts of the gastrointestinal tract, but they don't seem to have any particular outward effect, especially if we compare them to some of the other intestinal parasites, um, which we do know lead to colic, for example, we don't tend to see that with gastrophilic species. Okay, thank you. And antelmintin resistance, um, today I think it's quite a big issue everywhere really, but what actually is it and how currently how is affecting the UK? Okay, so and the way the best way to think about antelmintic resistance is um, you can give your, the a horse, for example, an antelmintic drug, a dewormer, um, but the, the dose that should kill the parasites that you're targeting no longer kills them because the, the parasites themselves have evolved to survive that lethal dose. Um, and there are many ways that, that that can occur. It can through be through overexposure. It can be through underdosing. There are lots of routes to get there. But when those parasites 
evolve to a point that they are resistant uh, and often um, it can be specific um, areas that of the parasite that the drug targets that could be specific genes that gets passed on to the next generation of parasites and more and more of those resistant parasites survive and then we can't treat them. And it actually is not new. If we look back at, at the literature, we sort of first became aware of antelmintic resistance um, in horses in the 1960s, uh, which was around the same sort of time that our broad spectrum antelmintics became available. And I think you're right in that it, it, worldwide now, but specifically in the UK at the moment, we, ha we have a drive to um, try and reduce the speed of antelmintic resistance. Um, so the, the Veterinary Medicines Directorate has set up this, the Canter Working Group, which is a, a pan-industry group with uh, an aim to try and provide some best practice guidelines for um, prescribers of antelmintics to try and help reduce the speed of antelmintic resistance. Um, and while that information is really designed for prescribers, C to be qualified persons, um, etc., and to be a source for vets to be able to tap into, it will be openly available to the public. Similarly, um, Beaver, through their sustainability group, are, are looking at their own um, vet-focused uh, guidelines to try and slow down antelmintic resistance because some work that recently came through from Laura Peachy's group at Bristol has shown that the, the evidence of the um, first multi-drug resistant slathostomins in um, UK thoroughbred studs. So we have reached a point now where we have places where within our small redworms, we can't treat them with any of the drugs that we have available successfully as we should be able to, because they are now resistant to all the drug classes that we have available. And we've been saying for quite a long time, there are no new drugs in the pipeline for horses. Now, I'm not aware of any, but it's it, the last time that a broad spectrum antelmintic was licensed for, for horse use in the UK was 1999. And that is quite a long time ago. So I think we have to accept that the, the drugs that we have available, we need to try and ensure that they will be effective for as long as possible against broad species of parasites. Yeah, this is, this is actually so scary. Um, as an equine practitioner, I do work daily with horses and it's now almost on a daily basis that we have horses with parasites despite, despite a very strict warming regime. So do you think the management in the past um, for gasterophilus has actually affected our situation and what kind of management was used um, in the past? Uh, a once a, a year treatment um, probably didn't actually need to be a specific treatment because most people were probably also treating for insisted small redworms at some point over the winter, which probably would have had the, the same effect, um, especially when using macrocyclic lactones. So um, it, you know, it hasn't been particularly intensively treated or not historically, um, but it's probably part of that, that bigger picture. And I think that's part of our antelmintic resistance problem in, in general. We became um, ingrained into a, an approach of, well, parasites are not a difficult problem to deal with because we have 
drugs. So we can give antelmintics at set time points, set times of year, set windows associated with how long it takes for the the egg reappearance to to reoccur. Um, And then we don't have to worry about anything else. And it made parasitology seem quite easy and straightforward. And I think horse owners, they associate parasites, all parasites with colic. And that comes back to um, assumptions from the, again, probably from the 60s, whereby there there was an association with Strongus vulgaris and colic. Um, But even though we have very few Strongus vulgaris in the horse population, definitely in the UK, from our intensive antelmintic use since the 60s onwards, um, we still have lot, we still have lots of cases of colic. So I think there's probably this irrational fear of parasites. Um, and I'm, I'm actually borrowing that little quote there because that's from Ray Kaplan and Martin Nielsen from about 10 years ago now. That the horse owners have really developed this irrational fear of parasites. And historically, from a vet's perspective, the easy advice was, well, we have a drug for that. And now we've all realised that that's not a sustainable approach. But then it's trying to spread the message to the wider horse owner um, and, and far, horse farms, especially sort of livery yards where you've got one person trying to coordinate lots of different owners, how they should go about their parasite control. And the messages are quite confusing, I think. And they, they need to sort of understand that actually we need to be looking and testing and doing lots of pasture management and good husbandry before we have to think about that that treatment approach yeah no definitely this is the part i think where we are struggling because every time i do try to suggest let's do some testing before giving any kind of warmer they just see it as a waste of money they can't realize why warmer cannot just be given like that yeah um and yeah definitely it's and also it's a money issue because... It is. <laughs> it is. But, I mean, way back um, in, well, 2010, when I um, was working for the University of Liverpool and we were working with a company that was building um, worming programmes for horses that were based on faecal egg counts, um, but trying to make it easier for, for the horse owners to manage. And we had several years of data. And on some of the larger livery yards, there was... a a clear financial saving by using a faecal egg count monitoring approach and only treating when they needed to versus having to treat. But I totally agree for most horse owners and and various horse managers, they see the cost of a faecal egg count or various other diagnostics um, that we might use to detect tapeworm and and other intestinal parasites. They see the cost of that and then they think, but if it then when comes back positive, then it has to treat which yes they do but in actual fact we know the the 80 20 or sometimes even the 90 10 rule that the the huge majority of horses often have a very very low parasite burden that we don't need to intervene with and it's only those high shedding animals that are the 10 20 percent that that we need to 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 intervene with so it's it's how we get that messaging to owners because it's very easy and and in the UK the setup is quite straightforward and easy in that there a horse owner can go to a retailer and they have to deal with a suitably qualified person so that suitably qualified person will then ask them 
questions to ensure that they have um, uh, taken the appropriate steps using diagnostics before they will sell them an antlomintic. But it seems to be sometimes a little bit easier to get antlomintics or, or via the internet where they complete all the required questions. Whereas in other places in the world, definitely sort of in Europe, it's getting much more difficult um, to just go and buy Antelmintic. It does mean that it's usually the vet that has to then become the block as to, no, you can't have this. But I think maybe sometimes the routes to getting Antelmintic, especially in the UK, are a little bit too easy. And so therefore owners do think, well, I can just treat or I always treated for botfly larvae in November, December. So I just want to achieve ivermectin for that without thinking about the the wider ramifications. Well, yeah, no, definitely. That's the tricky bit because it's just too easy to get them, as you said. There's no control whatsoever. And what they struggle also, at least what I've seen, is that they are convinced that they weigh less of what they actually weigh. And yes. then we just constantly get a lower dose of what actually should have been. Um, and yeah, definitely we should be able to give them the message at least when they get the warmer that you have to be 100% sure to have a good estimate of what is your horse weight. Yeah, um, I think, sorry, I was going to say uh, uh, on that point as well, it's almost that most people then forget that when they pop that syringe in their horse's mouth and they try and spit some of the paste back at them, that, you know, they probably need to allow an extra 50 kilos worth of dose almost in that they're probably going to lose a little bit in the delivery. And as you say, if they're not good at estimating the the weight and while weight tapes aren't the, the most accurate in the world, they would at least give them a, a, a ballpark figure to, to go with. So uh, you're right. There are lots of challenges. Um, do you think that our current antilmintic drugs are still effective against gasterophilus? Yes, I think that we we don't tend to, you know, as I said, this is really pretty much a once a year treatment because we don't see any clinical signs. We don't generally see huge burdens and you, know, you wouldn't see them apart from, you know, unless um, you might, if you were um, gastroscoping a horse, you may well see some in the stomach um, or, you know, from my perspective, I'm teaching students, we're doing dissection um, of the gastrointestinal tract. You might find a few, occasionally you might find a, a larger burden, but we don't see huge issues. And we did a little bit of work. I had a student a couple of years ago. We did a very simple study um, looking at um, some semi-feral uh, ponies from the um, southwest of the, the UK, sort of the New Forest some of the Dartmoor ponies um, a bit further down south as well. And we looked at uh, those that were going to the abattoir where there were too many, they were rounding them up, the older ones. And we looked at um, the the gastrophilus burden within their gastrointestinal tract, was specifically in the stomach, compared to managed horses that were coming to the abattoir. And the managed horses had much lower burdens because they probably had some anthelmintic treatment throughout their, their life. Um, and the just a once-a-year treatment was sort of keeping that, that burden low. So I think they do work. But I think what most people forget is when they were taught the calendar-based scheme of 
you treat for bot fly larvae in November or after the first frost, they forget two things. One, they forget that when they give that tube of wormer in November, probably a macrocyclic lactone, ivermectin, amoxidectin, it's not just the bark fly larvae that they're actually treating. They're treating, it's a bro- they're broad spectrum anthelmintics. So they are overexposing the sacrostomins and um, any other parasites that happen to be present, predominantly the sacrostomins that we're worried about because that's where our, our main issues with resistance lie. I think the other thing that we probably have to pay a little bit of attention to is climate change you know we we don't get that in the uk you could almost guarantee that you'd have a frost by november so you treated for for by larvae in november but uh now that doesn't necessarily occur and the the study i mentioned that with the student project before um we had some very early instars in early in the year sort of january february because we'd not had the frost and there were some still some flies around so therefore we were still seeing early stage larvae at a point in the year where we, we typically wouldn't right no definitely i started my career in italy and it's a little bit warmer than here and <laughs> um, <laughs> And it was like kind of a rule. Every time we did a gastroscopy, there were gastrophilus in there. Whereas here in the UK, I've literally seen probably, I've been here for years, and of all the gastroscopy I've done, I've probably seen gastrophilus twice, maybe. Yeah. So it's not as a big issue as people would think, maybe. It's not the one we have to tackle with. That doesn't surprise me at all. And I you know, I would imagine that most people are probably deworming their horses at least once a year. In fact, if they were only doing it once a year, I'd probably be very happy. They're probably doing it multiple times a year. So, And the fact that most of the antelmintics they deliver will be effective against our, our, our gastrophilus uh, larvae. I'm not surprised that you don't see them. Yeah, no, so... Probably is not the one we have to be con- particularly concerned about. Um, are you aware of any possible effect that gastrophilus can have regarding gastric ulcers? I'm not. I have to say, this is something I've always been quite interested in, and especially where we've had examples in the lab. We've been doing a, a, a dissection, or, or the, again, the, the specific student project where we were just looking for the the number and the weight of the larvae uh, in the stomach. And especially um, when we start getting into, I'm always a little bit fas- uh, fascinated by um, Gastrophilus nasalis because they actually uh, gestate sort of down in the pyloric region. I think it's quite impressive that these little larvae can quite happily live down at sort of pH 3, pH 2 in in, in acid um, and survive quite nicely. Uh, but definitely uh, um, gastrophilus intestinalis, the, the most common um, botfly larvae that we see with horses in the UK, it, they do as sort of uh, attached to that non-glandular portion of the stomach you know where we often see our our splash ulcers um and so it's always quite interesting to think well you know they do cause a bit of damage to uh the 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 stomach you can see the attachment site and you get a little bit of of thickening uh, of the mucosa where they have um attached it is like a little ulceration but it's not like a gastric ulcer um and 
it's it would be it would be very interesting to to do a little bit more work is sort of in that area to see if there is any relationship but then it's you know uh, probably most horses have very low grade gastrophilus at some point throughout the summer months it gets treated um, and whether that has any impact on on wider gastric ulcers my and this is very much a personal opinion but my personal opinion is i think that actually lots of horses have low grade gastric ulcers that we just don't always particularly know about you know it because when we again looking at various studies even looking at semi-feral animals and um, animals kept at grass all the time that still sort of have low-grade ulcers when their environment and diet should be ideal for not having ulcers um so it'll probably be really hard to tie the two things together but an interesting area all the same yeah no again it's something that we all tend to think about because definitely to be attached them there they must cause some kind of damage but yeah again i've really seen few horses we um gastrophilus and gastric ulcers at the same time do you think there is a best way to manage them um i it's it's tricky i think that so the gastrophilus intestinalis the most common bot fly that that we see um that's the one where they lay their eggs, usually sort of around on the lower limbs, the front legs, sometimes around the belly. Um, and they're quite obvious. I mean, there are certain places that you don't see them. So certain places in the UK, that it just doesn't quite have the right climate or it's too windy and you don't see them. But certain areas, maybe it's sheltered, it's warm, it's temperate. You'll see horses coming in in the, in the summer um, and they'll have these eggs on them. And the best thing to do is just remove the eggs. You can get, I believe they call them a bot knife. It's like a little um, sort of... Uh, almost like a little serrated blade that's just designed to run over the hair and all it does is just cut the eggs off the hair and if you remove them then the horse won't ingest them and therefore you break the cycle and I think that's it's a little bit like when we think about our um our small red worms our cyathostomins one of the best ways to um you know prevent horses becoming infected is is to break the life cycle through dung collection poo picking you know in, in a way you can do the same thing with, with gastrophilus species you can just remove the eggs and if the horse doesn't ingest the eggs then you break the cycle similarly um some of the other species uh gastrophilus nasalis for example the one that that gestates down in the pyloric region of the stomach they tend to lay their eggs around the head there's no reason that you can't do the same thing if you see the eggs on the face as long as you're very careful with the removal whip the eggs off and that breaks the cycle right and is there a specific way to diagnose them or is just a gastroscopy basically yeah it's tricky i mean you will see so the very early stages and um i there are some pictures in this in the in the clinical commentary in eve where um around the sort of the buccal cavities you'll see in the very early stages you'll see some larvae in the mouth so i mean should the horse be having a, a routine dental examination you might just happen to, to spy upon them then but it's probably unlikely uh, and as you say gastroscopy is probably um you know you might 
happen to see them should you be looking for gastric ulcers. Uh, I do believe that from a, a research perspective, that there is um, an ELISA that was created to try and identify burdens but it's not something that's ever been commercialized and I think probably as we've already said because there's not really much clinical relevance there's probably not much need so uh, my approach is more a case of um, if if horses have had lots of eggs on them even if you've removed them then okay that animal might be at greater risk and that's when the time where the owner should be talking to their vet um, or possibly their SQP, or, you know, to try and think about should they treat um, in the autumn, winter, if they're, if they're already treating for um, insisted small redworm larvae, the cytostomans, then in actual fact they're probably treating their, their botfly larvae at the same time. And what is the situation outside the UK regarding parasite control? Well, it's interesting. I was very lucky. I was at a meeting in March um, and it was a conference in Ghent and there was a, a parasitology meeting afterwards, um, predominantly vets and academics um, in the Netherlands and uh, some also in Belgium because and they have a similar approach where the UK has the, the Beaver Sustainability Group and, and Canter um, looking at trying to slow down anthelmintic resistance um, in, in the Netherlands um, and, and in Belgium. They also have a group trying to do something very similar. Um, the, they, the feeling was very much that, um, yes, across Europe, there are the SCAP guidelines, but actually it, it feels like that those are um, maybe quite treating parasites focus on treating parasites rather than trying to prevent anthelmintic resistance so it appears that there are sort of smaller groups forming um in, in various places definitely in europe trying to come up with some best practice guidelines that are probably uh, a little local in their approach so uh, as you say it, you know um in, in a warmer climate such as italy you may have to think slightly differently about your approach compared to our slightly more chilly climates in the uk <laughs> um but but definitely there is a feeling that Definitely across Europe and, and in America that, you know, we know we have to change the way that we do things. Um, but there's probably not a single joined up approach. There are slightly more fractured approaches. There are some worldwide things occurring. So there's some new um, uh, World Association for Veterinary Parasitology guidelines for um, for efficacy testing that have very recently been published. Um, and so there are some sort of bits of worldwide guidance getting out there, but it does seem that there are smaller groups that are very much sort of home country specific trying to, to tackle the problem locally. And this is something you mentioned at the beginning. You said that you're not aware of any new antelmintic drought that is coming up on the market. Do you think they're willing to do any research on this or the situation is quite static at the moment? It's been very static for a long time. It, it's, I mean, we can never say never, but um, I, up until now in the UK, we haven't had... Um, multi-drug resistant cyathostomes in horses. But this, this recent paper you know, has detected that we are on that pathway. And in reality, if we were to look at small ruminants, 
sheep are way ahead of horses in having um, multi-drug resistant parasites. But it is just a little concerning. If we think about production animals, there's a lot more money in in the, the whole industry to therefore think about actually going into to new um new drug r&d whereas the horse world's quite small in comparison um and it doesn't appear i think there have been little bits of work looking at the potential for um other antelintics that are licensed for ruminants could they also be be useful in horses and it doesn't appear that that's the case um and in reality although um as you mentioned yourself it's quite scary if we are careful with the drugs that we have we can make them last a bit longer but if we if i say we we're not it's not the we it's the horse owners if horse owners can be reined in a little bit to just use drugs as and when they're required and not treating prophylactically then um then we we should be Oh, we should be okay for a bit longer. I think this is sort of an, an old anecdote. I think having having worked with the horse owning public in the past, you're often trying to think of ways to describe things that um, will really sort of chime at the right note with them. And somebody once said to me, I thought this was quite good. You don't wake up in the morning thinking I might get a headache, so I'll take a paracetamol you take paracetamol if you have a headache. And yet we seem to think with horses, well, we'll treat them just in case they have a worm burden rather than checking they have a worm burden and then treating them. Right. So what would it be your whole message? What can we do to change the current situation? Well, I mean, that's it, it's quite tricky. I mean, really, it's, it's the information that is out there. It's good pasture management. Um, and it's it's being vigilant. So with castrophiles, for example, um, remove the eggs. If you see the eggs, remove the eggs. If you're really worried, if owners are really worried, they can talk to their vet. But as I said, the likelihood is they'll be having at least one small red worm um, or insisted small red worm treatment per year. That probably be moxidectin, which will treat those gastrophilus at the same time. So, you know, overall, it's about testing you know, test test horses you know, identify the the high shedders in the group um you know those that uh, appear to have low parasite burdens we, we don't need to worry about so much they they cope absolutely fine with it with a low parasite burden and you know we know that in, in actual fact the as we look into the horse's gut microbiome that there are interactions between gut microbiome and the parasites some of that's supposed to be you know normal low levels of that don't seem to be a problem and and over interfering is where we've sort of got ourselves into trouble so i suppose it's about not being afraid of parasites having a low level is fine only intervening when we need to and the most important thing is is the the pasture management and the husbandry and if owners could nail pasture management and the husbandry and do that really well then they would only need to treat when they have that that positive fecal account or if they're you know working with their their vet or their SQP or whoever wherever they get their their parasitology um, professional advice from to uh, treat for insisted small redworms depending on again a diagnostic or, or a plan and think about well that that broad spectrum treatment is actually probably covering most of the parasites that are inside the horse at the same time. 
Right. Thank you so much for that. That was brilliant. Um, hope you guys enjoy it and see you again soon. Thank you. See you. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash e.